Well, good morning. As those offering baskets are being passed, I just want to welcome you to Four Oaks as well. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott and one of the members of the pastoral team. Our lead pastor, Paul, he is away this weekend, and so I have the privilege of opening up God's Word to you. And, uh, you know, we are a few weeks into the school year, and so I just want to ask, how you doing? You guys okay? We're, I'm still a little frazzled trying to wake up early to take Abigail to Childs at 7 a.m. I'm like, oh, it's so early. Uh, and then you kind of get into the activities of different things that are going on. And so if you're like me, you can still kind of feel frazzled a little bit. And uh, in light of that, uh, I actually read this story this past week. I don't know how old this story is, um, but figured I would share it with you because I identified with it. Um, so in Sarasota, Florida, there was this older woman who had finished shopping, grocery shopping, and she returned to her car. But when she arrived there, she saw four men inside. And the increasing crime rate of her community just disgusted her. And so she had been preparing for this very moment. She dropped her shopping bags. She reached into her purse and she pulled out a gun. And she said, I have a gun and I know how to use it. Get out of my car. So the men, they didn't wait for a second invitation. You know, body, I mean, uh, you know, like, like doors are opening up, bodies were flying out, and these men just ran away from this crazy gun-toting grandmother. And uh, so despite her, you know, kind of Clint Eastwood sort of imitation, the, the woman was very frazzled. She was, she was kind of, oh, I don't know what to do. And so anyway, she took her a moment to kind of gather herself, but she did eventually pick up her shopping bags, get into the car. And she kept an eye out for the guys, and she couldn't find them. And so she, uh, she put her gun back into her purse, and then she, she tried to put in the key to start the ignition. And her hand was kind of shaking, and she was trying to put it in. And she thought at first it was just her hand that was trembling. But then she's like, I, it still won't go in, the ignition. And about that time, she takes a look at the car, and she realizes this this car doesn't look that familiar to me. And uh, about that time, then she notices an identical car about four or five parking spots away. And she realized that she had just become a part of the crime wave in her community. She had stolen someone else's car. Now, according to the story, she, she eventually transferred her groceries to the other car. She drove to the police station to turn herself in. And so the desk sergeant to whom she's telling this story about what happened, he just starts dying laughing. He like roll, starts rolling out of his chair, and then he points over to the other counter on the other side where four very frightened men <laughs> were reporting a senior adult carjacking. <laughs> and so uh, the woman, of course, made a full apology, and no charges were filed. Uh, I know it's a funny story, but sometimes, like, Life gets crazy, and you become kind of distracted and disoriented, and you're just walk, like taking one step in front of the other, not really paying attention to what's going on, and then you just get off track, and you lose your bearings, and then before you know it, you might start like waving a gun around or hurting people. And uh, you know, if you were at Reboot the last few weeks on Wednesday nights with us, we talked about this very thing, that life has a way of disconnecting us from Reality And ultimately, that reality is grounded in God. And uh, we, we kind of forget, though, who we are and where we're heading and, and what's going on. It's kind of uh, Paul Tripp, he calls it being a gospel amnesiac. And I love that phrase because even though we, we are Christians 
And the good news is that we have access to God. At the same time, we can just kind of forget. We just like go through life and, and we don't connect with the, with the God who loves us, who's with us, who's for us, who's, who's working all things together for our good. You guys relate to that? And wherever you might be this morning, Jesus has some words for you and for me in order to help reconnect us to him. And just at the stage a little bit, we find ourselves on Thursday night of Passion Week, and already Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He has uh, celebrated the Passover feast, and he's given some, some real uh, intimate sort of words and promises to the 12 disciples. But as the night moves on, things start to shift. You know, Jesus exposes Judas as the traitor, and he dismisses him. And then he begins to tell the disciples that he's going to go away and that their hearts shouldn't be troubled. But as you can imagine, this is just this is kind of disconcerting. It's discombobulating. It's confusing. They're, under, they're trying to figure out, like, what's going on? And what's in front of the disciples isn't good either. I mean, they're going to head to a garden where Jesus is going to sweat dro- like drops of blood while the disciples are falling asleep. And then into that same garden, Judas is going to kiss Jesus, betray Jesus, and hand Jesus over to the leaders to be crucified. And the disciples, they're going to run off. They're going to be embarrassed. They're going to be confused. They're going to be ashamed. They're going to be afraid. They're going to feel abandoned. Why do I mention all this? I think it's really important for us when we come to a familiar passage like John 15 that we don't just kind of skirt past it, but we begin to open up our eyes and our hearts to see the story that the disciples are in. And Jesus is saying, I know your story too. I know what, what you've already gone through, and I know what is ahead of you. I know your hopes and your dreams. I know your fears. I know your longings. I know your joys. I know your sorrows. I know it all. And into your story, I want to insert myself and say, abide in me. And so, at the end of chapter 14... When Jesus says, rise, get up from here, let's go, come with me, I've got something to show you, I've got something to tell you, he's not only speaking to the disciples, he's speaking to us. So with that invitation to us, let's read from John chapter 15. If you are willing and able, why don't you join with me and hear these words from Jesus to us. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Jesus, you tell us to abide in you. For some of us, our hearts are empty. For some of us, our hearts are anxious. For some of us, our hearts are discouraged. For some of us, our hearts are overwhelmed. For some of us, our hearts are anxious and fearful and fretful. For some of us, our hearts are full of of anticipation and hopes and dreams. And, And really, for all of us, our hearts are probably all these things to put together. And in those places, you want to speak to our hearts and say, abide in me. May your spirit make that invitation come to reality in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And as you do, uh, today's sermon is entitled, Abide in Me. And uh, like all good pastors, I've got three points. So abiding in Jesus or abiding in the vine is an invitation. It's an invitation to life. It's an invitation to liberty. And it's an invitation to love. So abiding in Jesus is an invitation to life to liberty, and to love. First, abiding in Jesus is an invitation to life. When the disciples and Jesus are walking out of the upper room and they're on their way to the garden, Jesus says these words. We don't know exactly what was the occasion. Maybe he saw a vineyard and he wanted to say it then, or maybe he pulled a coin out, and on the back of the coin, by the way, was a vine that represented Israel, Or maybe they were walking past the temple and and they see this in gold, this huge vine on Herod's temple that represented Israel. We don't know exactly what prompted this word picture, but Jesus wants to take this illustration and make it come to life for the disciples. And when the disciples hear this, they would have thought of the fact that the vine represented Israel. But what's interesting is while Israel often took pride in being the vine, every time God speaks of Israel as the vine, in the Old Testament, it's a declaration of judgment that is accompanied by it, not a declaration of blessing, because Israel did not bear fruit. Instead of life oozing and bursting forth out of the vine, instead there was, there was sadness and, and darkness and destruction and death with the Israelites. An example is uh, Isaiah 5, beautiful word picture that Isaiah, got, Isaiah gives, and he says there's this beloved, which represents God, and he plants a vineyard, he tills the soil, he, he clears the stones out, he plants choice vines, and then he, he watches over the vineyard. He takes care of it. And then when it's time for the harvest, instead of finding good fruit, he finds sour grapes 
And in verse 6, he says, Israel, you are that vineyard. I looked for justice, but all I saw was bloodshed. I looked for righteousness, but all I saw was outcry. And at the end of that story, Isaiah prophesies and said, God is going to trample down that vine. And we know that that happened when the Israelites were taken off into captivity. And ever since that time, there's, there's still been this longing, this longing for life. In Psalm 80, this captures this longing. And I want to read it to you, starting in verse 14. So it says, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, goes on and says, I think that's, that's, you're skipping a little bit. <laughs> Let me read. Have regard for this vine. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. So there's this longing for rescue, but then it transitions. And then it says this, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And so you see this transition where they're longing for life, but in this psalm, there's a prophecy that there's going to be a strong man to come. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I am that strong man. I will rescue. I will restore. I will save. I will give life to my people. It's a gospel declaration that Jesus is declaring. He's entering into this banner of failure over their lives, and he's, and he's saying, I've got this. Everything that you've relied on that has failed you, I will never fail you. Jesus is rescuing the imagery of judgment, that imagery of failure, and, he is, and that imagery of just no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, you always fall short. He's stepping into that mess, not only for the disciples, but also for you and me, because we fall so far short. And he's saying, I've got you. I am the true vine. That life that you're longing for, that fruitfulness that you desire, I am going to provide it. What you were unable to walk in, I will now make possible. That is what's being said said in this simple statement, I am the true vine. It's an invitation. Wherever deadness you might be experiencing, Jesus is saying, I've come to give you life. But how do we experience that life? How do we respond to that invitation? One word, abide. Ten times in these 11 verses, Jesus says, abide. Abide means to remain to dwell, to settle in, to stay, to be present, to wait, to persist, to commune, to commit, to stay connected. 
This is not a passive sort of abide. This is an active pursuit of Jesus. It's, it's saying, I'm going to receive you, Jesus, into my soul. I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to savor you. I'm going to rest in you. It's connecting to Jesus so that all of God that he offers to us in Jesus is flowing like a life-giving sap into our lives. So when we hear the word vine, we often think about like a tiny little vine in our, in our backyards. But the vine here, it's, if you were at a vineyard, it's, it's a big trunk. So this is a big trunk of life that Jesus is saying tap into. And it's a life that never runs out. D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says, Abiding is continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life. Imbibing. I love that word. I'm like, what does that mean? I had to look it up. It means drinking or absorbing. Um, so Jesus is saying, he's saying, he's, I want you to drink from me. I want you to, to receive from me. I want you to rest in me. Now, there's lots of different types of life that is offered in our lives, right? But Jesus is talking about a particular life because he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what sort of life or what sort of fruit is Jesus talking about? Well, many people have suggested that the fruit is maybe new converts, you know, telling people about Jesus and they come to faith in Christ. Other people say it's character growth, so like the fruit of the Spirit, and you're growing in that way. Other people say it's doing good deeds. All of these things, I think, are great definitions of fruit. But if we just limit it to one, let me actually limit what Jesus has in mind. What he is saying is everything. Ray Ortland says it this way. He says, fruit is the total expression of Jesus in us. It's his message. It's his character. It's his ministry. It's his impact. All of these things are available to us. And the more life you sap into you from Jesus, the more fruit you will bear. The more you'll look like Jesus, the more you'll act like Jesus. And so if you're like me, my tendency is to just try harder, do better, be a better Christian. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not, that's not what I have for you. Rest. Depend, wait, long, trust, rely on me. So my question is, do you want this life? And I think if we were all honest, we'd say, well, yeah, of course I do. But another way to ask it this way, what area of deadness do you want Jesus to bring life into? So maybe it's a particular dead place in your heart that you've kind of avoided or you just put it off and you don't even know what to, how to deal with it. Or, or maybe it's a dead relationship that you want Jesus to breathe life into. Or maybe it's, maybe it's a person who's lost and you see their dead heart and you want for life to come there. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying, I want to give you that life. And that life begins inside of you and oozes out to other people. So if you respond, yes, I want that life, well, Jesus tells us that he is compassionately and carefully going to work internally in us, but that's not all. The Father, he says, is going to compassionately and carefully work externally on us as well. 
In this word picture, Jesus explains that there's not just the vine, but there's also the vine dresser or the gardener or the farmer. And he says that it's my father who occupies this role. And the farmer in this passage has two jobs, to prune and to take away. First, for those fruitful branches, he carefully prunes, he cuts, he removes dead things in order for more fruit, even much fruit, to be borne out of the branches. And I think you probably know exactly what this means. Pain, suffering, hardship, difficulty, loss. And the Father is trying to pull away through those external things, deadness, so that more life can be brought out of us. He has a way of cleansing us and drawing us into greater union and communion with the vine. Uh, I'm sure we all probably have moments that we think of, points of suffering where God did exactly that. Maybe even right now, there's, a, there's, a, there's pain or loss that you're experiencing. And, and Jesus wants to tell us, he says, hey, uh, my father loves you. And it's out of this love that comes this pruning. It's not punishment. It's pruning. It's not, it's not pushing you away. It's drawing you closer in. Uh, there's a, a precious sister in Christ who had back surgery recently and um, I was just asking how she was doing. And so she sent this text to me, and I just thought I would share it. She said, I'm feeling okay, good and not so good moments. My sleep schedule is way off. So I listen to praise music or sermons at midnight or 3 a.m., which has become my favorite time of the day. It's just me and the Lord. I'm truly grateful for this whole back ordeal. It's hard to explain, but I feel like God has actually blessed me with pain. That sounds like a crazy person, doesn't it? The pain makes me think of him more. I guess that's a better way to say it. This idea is Jesus and his father are removing every barrier so that nothing stands between us and his moment-by-moment life-giving presence. Andrew Murray, in a book I highly commend, I read a couple years ago, called Abide in Christ, which is based on this passage, um, He says this, it says, It's only into the thirst of an empty soul that the streams of living waters flow. Ever thirsting is the secret of never thirsting. So God is helping us to see that those other things that we've been looking for for life, that we've been grabbing and holding on to, they won't satisfy. And until we go to him completely thirsty, That's the only time when we're never thirsty. When we try to satisfy our thirst by pursuing other things that we think are going to give us life, it will leave us still thirsty. So wherever you are, Jesus invites you in. It's an invitation to life. That's it. However you depleted, you might feel. Jesus says, hey, come to me. All the branches have to do is to stay connected. And the life of the vine flows in. The branches bring nothing but need and thirst. And even in that pruning, it's a way of removing those dead things to give more room for life. That's the invitation. But in this passage, there's also a strong warning. Just as Israel did not bear fruit and and God judged them, 
Jesus says here in this passage that there are some branches that appear to be connected to him, but they will bear no fruit, they will be taken away, and they will be thrown into the fire. And this is a scary proposition. But Jesus' illustration is really clear. To be a Christian is to bear fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no genuine faith. Doesn't mean that we are saved by our fruit. It means that we produce fruit because we are saved and we're tapping into the vine. And uh, the disciples, they might have been a little bit fuzzy on this illustration at this point, but very soon in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're going to see someone who appeared to be connected to Jesus. He was actually connected to him for three years. He was connected to the disciples. He was spending time with him, and yet there was no fruit. And John, the Apostle John, in reflecting on this, he says in 1 John 2, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So John and the disciples, they're going to see Judas, and they're going to see this guy who appeared to be connected in every sort of way, and yet no fruit. And this is really important. I would be remiss if I didn't say this right now, that some of you have been around Jesus and the community of believers for a really long time, but you're not really connected. You're not abiding. You're not bearing fruit. And if this is you, there's a warning that for those who aren't bearing fruit, they will be removed and thrown into the fire to be burned. But at the same time, this is also an invitation. You don't have to continue to live that way. Jesus says today salvation has been appointed for you. Don't continue to remain disconnected. Trust in me. Abide in me. Rest in me. Rely on me and I will give you life like you never dreamed. That's the invitation. Forever, wherever we're bearing fruit and Jesus is inviting us to experience life to bear more fruit, or we haven't yet borne fruit yet, Jesus is saying, abide in me and I will give you life. Second, Jesus invites us to liberty. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Let me read that again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Listen to that promise. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That is liberty. That's freeing. That's like huge. <laughs> it's a, that's a big promise. And here's the idea. Jesus is saying, when you are connected to my word, and you are relating so much to me, my heart and my word and my longings and my desires become your heart and your words and your longings and your desires. The more that you are spending time with me and abiding with me, the more you are tapping into all that I want for you to experience. 
You begin to see things differently. Instead of seeing just the here and now, you begin to see Jesus high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the Father. And right before he left the disciples, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And so even when we don't necessarily see all that God is up to, we know he is working. We know he is moving. And we know that these prayers that we ask God is going to answer in his divine purposes and his divine way. So Jesus is saying, I'm offering you freedom. I'm offering you liberty to really ask big things, to experience a reliance upon me and to give things over to me. Two applications to this. Uh, One that's personal and then one that's maybe more corporate. I call them breath prayers and big prayers, okay? So if you guys have been walking through a a book by uh, Mike Cosper called Recapturing the Wonder with the reboot that we went through, he talks about this idea of a breath prayer. And when I read this the first time, I was like, I don't don't even even know what that means. (laughs) read it a couple months ago. But as I was reading, I was like, I want that. Because the idea here is throughout the day, you just connect with God. Reconnect with the God of the universe. And so I was like, I want that. I want to connect with God in that way. I want to experience freedom and and liberty and all the things that God would have for me. And so um, for me personally, this is how I've uh, I've sought to apply it. Um, Last like six weeks or so, I've just had a lot of anxiety in my heart that's been bubbling up like a lot. And I don't even know where it's come from, don't know where it's, it's, you know, what the source is except um, that it's been there. And, and, and so God said, that's, that's a means for your breath prayers. And so what I've been doing the last four weeks or so is um, because he also communicates, like, use your breath prayers not only to pray, but also to ground them in God's character and his word. And so First Peter 5, 6, and 7, this is what I do. God, I'm humbling myself before you under your mighty hand. And I cast my anxiety upon you because you care for me. Breathe, rest, and trust. So yesterday, God, under your mighty hand, I cast my anxiety of sermon prep and preaching onto you because you care for me. And so it's kind of this sandwich, right? God's might, his his rule, his power, And then also, God cares a whole lot. And in between that big sandwich, here's my anxiety. And then just to help me visualize it, I try to see Jesus with with a big smile on his face saying, Scott, I got you. Give me me your burdens and I will give you rest. And there's that exchange. I'm giving this to you and you give me rest, freedom, liberty. I don't have to carry this on my own. I don't know what it might be for you and how you might be prompted towards breath prayers, but I found it to be really helpful for me just to connect with God. So that's the the breath prayers. The other thing is the big prayers. This is a big promise. And Jack Miller, um, he talks about the difference between what he calls maintenance prayer and frontline prayer. Maintenance prayers are things that I just mentioned, these 
you know, everyday sort of connecting with God, these, these personal needs inside the church. But he also talks about frontline prayers that are also really important. And they are focused on the big, grand plan of God, the kingdom of God coming on earth the way that it is in heaven. These big sort of prayers that you get to join with all of the saints to say, God, bring your kingdom on earth. Bring, bring liberty, bring life in the midst of darkness and decay and just destruction. Bring all of, all of the, the life that you so desire for us to experience. May your church push back the gates of hell. I want to see your glory on earth right now. I want to seek your face. And so these are big prayers. And this is what uh, has prompted us to... Um, well, we're going to start this Thursday. For the first Thursday of each month, we're going to gather corporately in Gallery 14 to ask big prayers of God, to pray for God's kingdom of light and liberty, to permeate areas of darkness in our homes, in our communities, and around the world. And specifically, we're going to pray for our overseas gospel partners who are in very dark places. And we're going to pray for the lost we're seeking to reach in Tallahassee. These are prayers that are outside of us, focused on what God is doing around the world, and ask him for big things. Jesus invites us to liberty, to, to, to enjoy and rest and ask for big stuff. So I'd love for you to, to come and join me uh, this Thursday for that. So God invites us into life, into liberty. And then finally, abiding in Jesus is an invitation to love. Verses 9 and 10, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There's, there's a, again, it's almost, like a, it's almost like a sandwich a little bit. The first thing is abide in Jesus' love. See Jesus. The next day, what's he going to do? He is going to die for his disciples. And he's, he's going to die for us. See that love. See the love of Jesus for you and for me. And then only that, he says that when you obey, then you experience my love even more. Not that the love has ever changed, but our experience of love has grown as we follow after God, as we commune more and more with him. We experience that sort of love in life. What Jesus is trying to get across here is, I love you. And I want you to abide in that love. Abide in my love. See me loving you. Rest in that. Enjoy that. Just as the Father tells Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, Jesus says that same love that I have from the Father, that is available to you. Jesus wants you to hear, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Rest in that. Abide in that sort of love. Uh, Deal Moody November 24th, 1871, if you're familiar with him, he's an evangelist. His church building was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire, and so he was just super discouraged. He went to New York to seek financial help, and day after day after day, he kept just, he was asking for, he walked in the streets, not only asking for money, but also asking for God to move in his heart. And so then, suddenly, this is his what he recounts. He says, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. 
I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. He knew that God loved him before, but now there was just this outpouring of God's love so much as he was abiding in God's love. that He was like, stop it. It's too much. It's too overwhelming. And then he goes back to Chicago and he says, I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any truths and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all the world, it would be small dust in the balance. D.L. Moody was just so overwhelmed by God's love that it completely changed everything about him. It changed the way he preached. It changed the way he ministered. It changed the way he related to God because he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loved him. I want that for you. About uh, three-ish years ago, I read a, 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 actually four years ago, as we as a pastoral team, we read a, a book about D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and one of the things that really stuck out to me was he talks about this experience of God's love. And he called it being out, just experiencing the outpouring of the Spirit or being baptized, just being, just being clothed with God's love. And he explains it this way. He says, it's like, a, it's like a father and a son, and they're walking side by side on the beach. And then all of a sudden, the father just picks him up, gives him a big hug and says, I love you, my son. I read that. I was like, I don't even know what that means. I know God loves me, but that sort of big divine sort of hug, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Just kind of ignored it. About a year later, I really began through uh, redemption groups, which we launched about three years ago. Just really experienced God begin to say, Scott, I love you. I remember one particular time where I just was overwhelmed by God's love. And I, and I wanted to, I just longed, I had longed for it for a while, prayed for it for a long time. And then God just poured out his love on me. Uh, it was unexpected. Uh, I didn't, I mean, I, I prayed for it, but I, but I, didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. It just, just came. And uh, God says, that's what I want for you to abide in. I want for you to abide in my love. Some people might say, Scott, you seem different now. I say, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I am different. I've always known God loves me, but now I really know God loves me. And that's what Jesus is inviting you into as well. If you've longed for Jesus, to, for you to experience that sort of love, pray for it, beg for it. Meditate on Jesus loving you at the cross. Meditate on the Father loving you and saying, you are my child. And pray that the experience of that truth would become real in your hearts in a profound way. Another person who um, I think experienced this was Peter. Peter's hearing these words, and then just a few short hours later, he's going to betray Jesus. He's going to look at Jesus face to face in the courtyard on the third betrayal. And Jesus is going to look at Peter eye to eye 
with love, and Peter is just going to be overwhelmed because he's denied Jesus and cursed Jesus for the third time. Peter's going to go out weeping. Jesus is going to die. He's going to be raised from the dead. And on Sunday, he's going to appear briefly to the disciples, show his hands and his feet. But it's the following weekend, which we'll get to in John a little bit later, where Jesus is um, he's on the shore, and he sees his disciples far out. They're, they're fishing. Of course, they aren't catching any fish. And Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side. This is miraculous, of course, provision of fish. But that's not the most important thing for Peter. John, when he sees, when he sees and realizes what's going on, he says, it's the Lord. And Peter, he doesn't care. He's got, he's got like a tiny little loincloth on and that's it. And he, normally you would clothe yourselves and you would wait for the boat to take you back to shore. He does not care. No sin, no shame, no fear, no nothing's going to keep him from the love of Jesus. He's going to swim a hundred yards to Jesus and just look at him face to face. And he's going to rest in Jesus's love. And that is going to dramatically shape and change the rest of his life. When Jesus says, I want you to feed my sheep, Peter. He says, absolutely, because you love me and I love you and I will serve you the rest of my life. And that's the invitation for us. When Jesus invites us to experience his love, out of the outpouring of that love comes obedience, which comes even more of an experience of Jesus's love. And what's the result? Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified. Glory goes to God. And, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy. When we get to experience life, liberty, and love from God, joy comes forth. That is the invitation that Jesus offers to you and to me as we abide in him. Let's pray.